Section 37 of Pantrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrophion by Alexis Sawyer. Chapter 35. A Roman Supper. Two lustres had passed since the world obeyed Domitius Nero, son of Agrippina. The Romans, a herd of vile slaves, docile adulators of the infamous Caesar, had already celebrated nine anniversaries of his happy accession to the empire, and the flamen of Jupiter solemnly thanked the gods at each of these epochs for all the benefits that the well-beloved monarch had unceasingly lavished on the earth. Few princes, it is true, ever equaled Nero. He and his mother had poisoned Unius Silanus, the proconsul of Asia. Subsequently the young emperor made away with Agrippina, and the Senate applauded that horrible crime, which was only the prelude to outrageous enterprises which astonish the historian who narrates them. The flamen was indeed bound to offer up solemn thanksgivings to Jupiter for having hitherto restrained the crowned monster from the commission of evil which afterwards marked his flagitious career. It was the sixty-fourth year of the Christian era. The emperor had passed some time at Naples whence it was thought he would go into Greece. But suddenly, changing his project, he returned to the capital of the world, to prepare, it was said, a spectacle of unheard-of splendor, and such as Nero alone could conceive. One of his ancient freedmen, Gaius Domitius Seba, resolved to celebrate the return to Rome in the tenth anniversary of the reign of his master, who was now become his patron and friend. That man possessed immense riches, a formidable credit at court, and an insolence which had struck so much terror into the souls of the proudest families of the empire, that they had long since humbled themselves before him. So that it was no sooner whispered among the Roman aristocracy that the magnificent Seba intended to give a banquet, than one and all became anxious to be numbered with the guests of Caesar's favorite. However, days passed. The time for the nocturnal festival approached, and the inviter had not made his appearance. Among the Hebrews nothing was more simple and unsophisticated than an invitation to dinner, but with the Romans etiquette required that the Amphitryon should send one of his servants to each person who was to participate in his pompous hospitality. This servant, who was generally a freedman, went from house to house, and indicated with exquisite politeness the day and precise hour of the banquet. Seba's inviter was at last announced to the two consuls of the year, Lacanius Bassus and Licinius Crassus, who accepted with tender gratitude the distinguished honor which the enfranchised slave deigned to confer upon them. Afterward the same favor was received with the same gratitude by the Agrippas, the Ancuses, the Cossuses, the Drususes, and all those who were the most noble, powerful, and proud in Rome. The next day, about two o'clock in the afternoon, the repast was to begin at six o'clock, an unusual movement reigned in the Palatine Baths, and those of Daphne's near the Sacred Way. The Mediastini kept up a steady fire under the coppers, the Capsari folded with care the clothes of the bathers, the Unguntari sold their oils and unguents, and the Fricatores, armed with the Strigal, a sort of wooden, iron, or horn spoon, rubbed and scraped the skin before the tractatores came gently to manipulate the joints, and skillfully shampoo the body, which gained by this operation more elasticity and suppleness. The upper classes of the Romans never sat down to table until they had undergone all these preliminaries of minute cleanliness. 
the future guests return home after the bath to employ the skill of the barbers tonsores who are in waiting to give more grace to the hair and remove with the aid of tweezers and pumice the first silvery indications of the lapse of years which though incessantly effaced still reappeared a more serious occupation succeeded epicureans should never neglect their teeth particularly at the approach of a banquet nor did the ingenious gastronomy of the first century of our era neglect to invent tooth-powder which cleaned the enamel without injuring it and fortified the gums those fortresses of mastication some persons made use of substances which no one would adopt in the present day because our delicacy revolts against them but preparations less offensive were employed and men of good taste as well as fashionable ladies extolled ox-gall goat's milk the ash of stag's horns of pig's hooves and of egg-shells thus were the teeth equipped as the comic plautus has it or rather thus they were prepared to undergo the labor required of them those who had had the misfortune to lose some of those powerful gastrophagic auxiliaries substituted false ones of ivory which art found means to render absolutely similar to their neighbors the eye was deceived what more could be required but the clepsydrae and the celebrated clock of the field of mars announced that it is time to put on the white light robe a little longer than the pallium of the greeks and to which the latins have given the names of vestis kinatoria vestis triclinaria vestis convivialis this last part of their toilet finished the guests set out for the magnificent abode of their host preceded by a few slaves and followed by their shadows those hungry hangers-on of whom mention has already been made and who strove to obtain on the road a smile or a word by dint of cringing obsequiousness arrived at the atrium the crowd of roman nobles are conducted into the interior of the house by the parasites of seba the proud freedman disturbed himself for nobody but like the opulent greeks whom he aped he left to these ignoble families the care of replacing him in the honors of his palace they enter an immense hall decorated with unheard-of luxury lighted by lustres and round which are several ranks of seats not unlike the folding-stools and armchairs we meet with in the present day in the most elegant boudoirs the guests seat themselves and a non-egyptian slaves approach with perfumed snow-water which flows from golden vases of the most graceful forms and cools the hands of senators and roman knights whilst other servants disencumber them of their patrician shoes the end of which represents a crescent the feet then received a similar ablution and fresh slaves skilful orthopedists accomplish in a twinkling the delicate toilet of these extremities and imprison them again in elegant and commodious sandals fastened by ribands which cross on the top here and there a few persons are remarked who still wear their togas having doubtless forgotten to substitute the banqueting dress so soon as the major-domo perceives them he makes a sign to some youths clothed in white tunics who hasten to present to each of these guests a synthesis or short wool investment of different colors which envelops the whole body but leaves the shoulders and breast uncovered if the wearer desire it these indispensable preliminaries being terminated the seats disappeared and the guests stood waiting for the freedman seba who speedily entered accompanied by the two consuls for whom places of honor had been reserved on couches beside their pompous amphitryon the latter deigned to address a few words of welcome to his noble company and each one stretched himself on his couch of gold and purple the fourth couch was given up to the parasites and shadows meanwhile slaves were burning precious perfumes in golden vases 
acari, and young children were pouring on the hair of the guests odoriferous essences which filled the banqueting hall with balmy fragrance. Rome had borrowed this custom from the east. The golden panelling of the hall shone with dazzling brightness as it reflected a torrent of light from the crystal candelabra, and the melodious sounds of the hydraulic organ announced the commencement of the banquet. At this signal servants, richly dressed, placed within the circle formed by the couches lemon-wood tables of inestimable price, which they immediately cover with a rich tissue of gold and silk. That done, sylph-like hands spread them over with a profusion of the rarest flowers and rose-leaves. Musicians, symphoniaki, then occupy a kind of orchestra or platform, raised at one of the extremities of the hall, among whom the flute and harp players are to be particularly remarked. The former constitute among the Romans a special body dubbed with the name of college, and they have the exclusive right to attend banquets and enliven the pomp of ceremonies. These musicians execute a slow, dulcet melody while the slaves are placing on the tables the statues of some of the principal gods, together with that of the divine Nero, whom a pusillanimous flattery ranks already with the immortals. At this moment they also arrange here and there the salt cellars, while the more meditative of the guests invoke Jupiter before they give themselves up to the pleasures of the feast. Hardly is this short prayer finished when joyous cup-bearers distribute charming little crystal cups, which Ethiopian slaves fill to the brim with a generous honeyed wine, drawn in the first instance from those large pitchers which the Greeks have named amphorae. Some drops of the exhilarating liquid are offered to the Lares, household gods, by sprinkling it in their honor on the floor and the table. This pious libation precedes the entrance of the first course, Antikoena, composed of the lightest and least succulent kinds of viands, by means of which a generous host stimulates the appetites of his guests, as a preparative for brilliant exploits. Lettuces, olives, pomegranates, Damascus plums, tastefully arranged on silver dishes, serve to encircle dormice, prepared with honey and poppy juice, forcemeat balls of crab, lobster, or crayfish, prepared with pepper, cumin, and benzoin root. A little further, champignon and egg sausages, prepared with garum, are placed by the side of pheasant sausages, a delicious mixture of the fat of that bird, chopped very small, and mixed with pepper, gravy, and sweet sun-made wine, to which a small quantity of hydrogarum is added. Tempting as these delicate viands may be, the practiced Epicureans seem to have a decided preference for peacock's eggs, which they open with spoons. These eggs, a masterpiece of the culinary artist who presides over Siva's stoves, are composed of a fine perfumed paste, and contain each one a fat-roasted ortolan, surrounded with yolk of egg and seasoned with pepper. We will not go through the list of all the dishes which compose the Antikoena. The nomenclature was offered according to custom to the guests of the rich freedman, but the reader would doubtless think it a little tiresome. We must, however, inform him that the true gastronomists, and there were many at that banquet, did no more than give note of preparation to their appetite by plying it with pickled radishes, some few grasshoppers of a particular species fried with garum, gray peas and olives fresh from their brine. The first course was removed to the sound of music. Now came chased silver cups much larger than those of crystal, no doubt because thirst is excited by drinking. Amphorae of a secular wine were ranged by the major domo on the mosaic flooring of the hall at some distance from the triclinium. 
and they proceeded by invitation of the consuls to the choice of the symposiarch or master of the banquet upon whom devolved the duty of regulating how often any person was to drink and of preventing the guests in the best manner he could from yielding too easily to bacchic provocations which commonly led to unseemly gaiety and the loss of reason this sort magiric magistry was obtained by lot or the unanimous call for a personage worthy of such a distinction that memorable evening every voice named the senator drusillus one of the most determined drinkers of the roman aristocracy drusillus smiled snapped his fingers and by the order of his master thus intimated a slave who was standing behind him filled a golden crater with wine and presented it to the symposiarch thereupon the latter slightly raising his head from the downy cushions on which it rested and supporting it from the left elbow makes a graceful bow to the amphitryon the consuls and the rest of the assembly then with a stentorian voice slaves he cried bring wreaths of flowers fugitive images of the spring and of pleasure they shall bind our brow at the same time let garlands adorn our craters in which the cherished liquor of the son of semele sparkles and let us bestow no thought during the fleet joys of the banquet on the uncertain and fatal hour when atropos shall pronounce our doom this speech slightly impregnated with the epicurean philosophy so much in fashion during the reign of nero had at least the merit of a praiseworthy conciseness nor did it fail to attract applause from the auditors whose brows and cups were speedily adorned with wreaths of roses which young boys clothed in white tunics arranged with marvellous art the slight rustling of the flowers was soon drowned by the shrill noise of the trumpets which announced the second course a flattering buzz welcomed this profusion of viands which encumbered the tables and well-nigh crushed them with their weight there were the peacock the duck whose breast and head are so much coveted capons livers peppered becaficos grouse the turtle-dove the phenicopter and an infinite number of rare birds the costly tribute that europe asia and africa exchanged against the gold of the prodigal seba other gold and silver dishes contained these inestimable fishes which roman luxury brought so much into fashion the scarus or parrot-fish sturgeons turbos mullets and those numerous inhabitants of every sea with which the tanks were stocked to supply the kitchen of the freed slave moreover there were wild boars a la troyenne ranged in the centre of the table in silver bases of a prodigious value stuffed pigs quarters of stag and roebuck loins of beef kidneys surrounded with african figs sow's paps prepared with milk sow's flank and some pieces of gallic bacon which certain gluttons loved to associate with a piece of succulent venison while the carvers were cutting up the meats with incredible address to the sound of a light but animated music numidian slaves filled the cups from small leathern bottles with old greek wine a servant carried bread round the tables in a silver basket and others ventilated the apartment or offered the guests warm and iced water in every direction trays circulated covered with divers kinds of meats which they took care to humect with peppered garum that strange condiment which the freed slave procured from spain at a price equal to its weight in gold suddenly the symposiarch commands silence the musicians obey the slaves are motionless let us drain our cups said he in honor of caesar let us celebrate the tenth anniversary of his glorious reign and his happy return to the metropolis of the world let us drink senators and knights as many craters as there are letters in the cherished name of the emperor 
Sense and reason must have succumbed had the patrician assembly toasted Caius Lucius Domitius Nero. It would have been constructive treason not to empty twenty-three cups, but they limited themselves to four, which represented the last of these names. Joy unrestrained floated with the fumy wine, furnished from large glass amphorae, on which were these words, Falernian wine of a hundred leaves, made under the consulship of Apimius. The consuls and the Roman nobles almost forgot in the voluptuousness of the splendid repast that the executioner of Britannicus and Burrus, the crowned tiger, was doubtless thinking at that very moment of taking some of the heads then present. A funereal spectacle soon aroused their dormant fears. An officer of the palace presented himself at the door of the banqueting hall. He advanced slowly, followed by two slaves, who laid on the table an object covered with a winding-sheet. Pressing occupation, said the imperial messenger, prevents Caesar from sharing with you the hospitality of Seba. But he thinks of you and sends you a testimony of his remembrance. Long live Caesar, cry the consuls, the freed slave, and some few trembling voices. The officer retires. The veil which shrouds Nero's present from every eye is removed, and all perceive a silver skeleton of terrifying truthfulness and which, by its admirable mechanism, proclaims artists to be one of those Greeks who have come to Rome to seek fortune and celebrity. This episode engrossed the thoughts of the greater part of the guests, and the old senator, Lucius Vafra, could not help saying with a sigh to his neighbor, Virginius Rufus, one of the consuls of the preceding year, Fear the Greeks! Fear this disastrous present! But the hot wine which was being served, and the healths which succeeded without interruption, drove the sinistrous presage from their minds, and moreover the present of the emperor was nowise contrary to the manners of the epoch, and the thought of death would only have enlivened the repast if it had been presented by any other than Nero. At first healths were drunk in the Greek fashion, that is, beginning by the most distinguished personages, he who drank bowed and said, I wish you every kind of prosperity, or simply, I salute you. In pronouncing these words, he who drank the health took only a part of the wine contained in the cup and sent the remainder to the guest he had just designated. Many craters were then emptied in honor of the mistress of the house, Domini. Neither were the illustrious dead nor absent friends forgotten. The formula was nearly the same for all. To your healths, said the symposiarch, to our own, to that also of the friend whom we cherish. Sometimes Drusilla, still fascinated with that dulcet poetry of the Greeks with which, when young, he had stored his mind, would take up the harmonious cadences of Horace, and thus personate, as it were, those divine chanters of Attica who have immortalized themselves by celebrating love, wine, and pleasure. One of his extempore strains, while sipping the sparkling liquor from his cup, was, This dream of bliss maintain. Prolong these happy hours, O oh, all enchanting wines, perfumed with flowers, which coasts and cypress rear. Let nothing ever change this soul-felt rich delight, for I would say, when parting for the realms of night, I never knew a tear. This sensual philosophy found numberless echoes in that vainglorious Rome who exhausted her disdain, outrage, and punishments on the so-called new fantastic folly that the Nazarenes were endeavoring to introduce. A few years more, and their doctrine will subjugate the universe. Time passed rapidly, and the meats divided into equal portions were served to the guests, who frequently did not touch them, but gave their share to their servants or sent it home. 
So soon as the major domo perceived that appetite began to flag, he ordered the hole to be cleared and the dessert spread on ivory tables to be substituted for the more substantial comestibles, with which the guests were satiated. Exquisite drinks, artificial wines, delicate and light ailments still came to titillate the palate and the burthened stomach. Pears, apples, walnuts, dried figs, grapes, a thousand different kinds of raw cooked and preserved fruits. Tarts, cakes, and those incredible delicacies which the Latins designated by the collective generic term balaria, wooed the Epicurean, if we may be allowed the expression, with their mild material, dangerous, and irresistible eloquence. Someone proposed to replace the half-faded flowers by Egyptian wreaths, and every brow was soon bound with garlands of roses and myrtle interspersed with little birds, which by their fluttering and chirping soon restored the drowsy company to that animation which seemed to wane. Then began the amusements of the evening. A troop of strolling players were admired for their agility and suppleness. Some rolled round a cord like a wheel which turned on its axle. They hung by the neck, by one foot, and varied these perilous exercises in a thousand different ways. Others slid down a cord lying on the stomach with their arms and legs extended. Some revolved as they ran along a descending cord. Some, in a word, performed feats of strength and address on the horizontal rope which were truly incomprehensible, and at an elevation from the flooring which would have rendered a fall fatal. To these acrobats succeeded prestidigitators, who appeared to receive a peculiar degree of attention. One placed under cups a certain number of shells, dry peas, or little balls, and he caused them to disappear and reappear at will. The spectators strained their eyes without being able to comprehend anything. Another of these mountebanks wrote or read very distinctly while whirling rapidly round. Some vomited flames from the mouth or walked head downwards on their hands and beat with their feet the movements of the most agile dancers. Then a woman appeared holding in her hand twelve bronze hoops with several little rings of the same metal which rolled round them. She danced gracefully, throwing and successively catching the twelve hoops without ever allowing any of the rings to fall. After that another juggler rushed with his breast uncovered into the midst of a forest of naked swords. Everyone thought him to be covered with wounds, but he reappeared with a smile on his countenance whole and sound. These feats were followed by an interlude in which the parts were amusingly sustained by marionettes. The Greeks knew this childish pastime, and Rome did not disdain it. These little bronze and ivory figures played some comic scenes tolerably well and obtained the applauses of grave senators who more than once forgot their senility as they contemplated the grotesque pantomime. The only thing now wanting to render Seba's supper a worthy specimen of nocturnal Roman feasts was to produce before the guests one of those spectacles which outrage morals and humanity. Nero's freedman had been too well tutored to refuse them this diversion. Young Syrians or bewitching Spanish girls went through lascivious dances which raised no blush on the brow of rigid magistrates who forgot in the abode of the vile slave the respect due to their age and dignity. After the voluptuous scenes of the lewd Celtiberians, blood was required, for they seemed to have been formed by nature to take a strange delight in sudden contrasts. Ten couples of gladiators armed with swords and bucklers occupied a space assigned to them, and ten horrible duels recreated the attentive assembly. For a long time nothing was heard but the clash of arms, but the thirst for conquest animated those ferocious combatants, and they rushed with loud cries on one another. Blood flowed on all sides, the couches were dyed with it, and the white robes of the guests were soon spotted. 
Some of the combatants fell, and the rattles announced approaching death. Others preserved in their last struggle a funereal silence, or endeavored to fix their teeth in the flesh of their enemy standing erect beside them. The spectators, stupefied with wine and good cheer, contemplated this carnage with cold impassibility. They only roused from their torpor when one of those men, happening to trip against a table, struck his head on the ivory, and his antagonist, prompt as lightning, plunged his sword into the throat of his foe, whence torrents of black, reeking blood inundated the polished ivory and flowed in long streams among the fruits, cups, and flowers. The deed was applauded. Servants washed the tables and the floor with perfumed water, and these stirring scenes were soon forgotten. A last cup was drunk to the good genius whose protection they invoked before returning home. Meantime, a stifling atmosphere pervades every part of the hall, and a hollow noise rumbling in the distance excites at intervals in the minds of the guests a sort of undefinable apprehension, the ordinary presage of an unknown but imminent catastrophe. The consuls raise themselves on their couches and listen. Their host endeavors to calm their fears, but at this moment a slave, panting for breath, rushes towards Seba and pronounces a few inarticulate words. Fire, cries the anguished freeman. Where is the fire, inquire all the terrified guests who have heard but this one sinistrous word. Everywhere, replies the slave, it has burst forth simultaneously in every part of the city. No one waits to hear more. Consuls, senators, knights, musicians, and servants jostle one another, and abandoning those who fall, arrive pell-mell at the atrium. The porter, still chained, trembles at his post. The flames already envelop the sumptuous edifice. The entire street is one vast brazier. Rome burns, and will soon be a heap of ruins and ashes. Flight is impossible. The flames intercept every issue. Nero has taken his measures well. We will not attempt to depict the mute but terrible despair of those proud patricians at bay in the midst of an ocean of fire in which they are fated ere long to perish. The wreaths of flowers which bind their brows are already parched by the scorching breath of those roaring flames which engulf and consume everything as they sweep along. A thick smoke begrimes the lustrous robe, whose graceful folds erewhile displayed the exquisite urbanity of Seba's guest, and which now exhibit only a sad emblem of festive joys. The dread of death, and I know not what strange anguish at this all-important moment, blanched those human faces to which the choicest wines of Greece and Italy had just given a hue of purple. These men feel, instinct tells them, that life is theirs no longer, and they have not the courage to die. The opulent freedman calls to his slaves and promises them their liberty if they consent to risk their lives in an attempt to save his. But the vile herd is already dispersed. The porter alone remains, for no one has thought to liberate him. And he, in his impotent fury, replies by insulting clamors to the cowardly supplications of his quondam master. The horrible scene soon changed by the very action of that torrent of fire which was pursuing its devastating course, and the next day when Aurora appeared a heap of ruins was all that remained of the odious Seba's magnificent palace. The two consuls and some of the senators were fortunate enough to escape the common danger. Less besotted, perhaps, by the wine and good cheer, and finding in despair that incredible energy which sometimes operates the same prodigies as courage, they rushed through the flames and gained the country, or those obscure portions of the city which the son of Agrippina had apparently forgotten. Thus it was that Lucius Domitius Nero celebrated the tenth anniversary of his glorious reign. 
while the fire was rolling on with its resistless flood of flame from temples to palaces and from the circus to the pantheon the young poetic caesar his brow bound with laurel and holding in his hands a golden lyre viewed from the top of a tower where he was surrounded by a troop of histrions and buffoons the conflagration he had just kindled and while the imperial apollo sang some melancholy verses on the fatal destiny of the antique city of troy his ignoble courtiers cried with enthusiasm may the gods preserve nero their august son and the delight of the human race such was the last gorgeous feast at which the magiric genius presided in that rome which romulus had founded and which engulfed the treasures and wonders of the world destroyed by the imperial incendiary it arose from its ashes with increased beauty and voluptuousness and the wild joy of its new banquets caused the thoughtless queen of nations quickly to forget the disasters of the past and the sinistrous presages of the future biographical notes nero lucius domitius nero's father was caius domitius anobarbarus agrippina was his mother he took the reins of the empire at the age of eighteen a d fifty four and governed at first with clemency and equity the roman people transported with love for their young prince indulged the fond hope of long and unalloyed felicity but they were soon aroused from this delusion to a sense of the dire reality nero had forgotten himself in the path of virtue he rallied by trying his hand at crime and found at last his true vocation others have recounted his detestable infamies we will merely remind our readers that he poisoned britannicus that he caused his mother to be slain that he killed his wife octavia by kicking her and that seneca his preceptor only escaped his cruelty by having his veins open in the year sixty four he took it into his head to set fire to the city of rome and then accused the christians of that prodigious atrocity language cannot describe the unbridled luxury of this ignominious emperor his gilded house his ivory ceilings his marine vases the nets of gold and scarlet with which he fished the incalculable profusion of his repasts everything connected with nero betrayed a species of pompous monomania leading to excesses so immeasurable and abominable that in these days they excite doubt or incredulity the entire world detested the monster galba and the roman army revolted against him and the pusillanimous caesar fled barefooted and wrapped in a sordid robe but alarmed at the idea of the tortures he would have to undergo if he fell alive into the hands of the cohorts and the people and finding no executioner more infamous than himself he plunged a sword timidly into his breast while a freedman epaphroditus guided his trembling hand this happy event happened in the year sixty eight nero had reigned thirteen years this prince sat down to table at midday and did not quit it till midnight he had reservoirs stocked with the most rare and exquisite fish and he gave to his boon companions suppers which vied in delicacy with their astonishing magnificence let this then plead our excuse for having classed the cruel but epicurean caesar among the high culinary notabilities whose names glory or excesses we record in this work heliogabalus heliogabalus marcus aurelius antoninus verus son of antoninus caracalla and semiamira immortalized himself by his follies and merited the name of the sardanopolis of rome his grandmother his grandmother moesa had a fancy to have him invested with the functions of priest of the sun 
and the following year, 218, the army elected him to succeed Macrinus. He was then only fourteen years old. It would be impossible to give a complete catalogue of the crimes which stained this precocious monster. His luxury knew no bounds, and his insatiable gluttony led him to send into distant provinces for rare birds unknown in Italy. The golden lamps of his palace were supplied with a precious balm, and scented waters of exquisite delicacy were daily renewed in the vast piscina of this beardless Caesar. His beds were adorned with coverlets of a cloth of gold, and in his kitchens none but skilfully chased silver utensils were employed. It is said that Heliogabalus invented after-dinner lotteries. His guests took the tickets at random, and fate gave to one some vase of inestimable value, to another a simple toothpick. A fortunate adventurer would receive for his allotment ten elephants, richly caparisoned, and his less lucky neighbor had to contend himself with ten flies and loud bursts of laughter from the imperial stripling. Thank heaven this frightful phenomenon of turpitude and folly never attained manhood. The soldiers of his guard massacred him after a reign of something less than four years, and threw to the populace the dead body of a young man of eighteen, who in the course of his brief existence had exhausted the treasures of the empire and enlarged the sphere of every crime. The gastronomic art is, however, indebted to the odious Heliogabalus for some useful discoveries, and for that reason alone he is here mentioned. Epicurus Born 337 years B.C. in the market town of Gargettus, near Athens, taught in his gardens a system of philosophy which, though indulgent towards the requirements of the senses, possessed the merit of a sovereign disdain for every kind of superstition. Epicurus had a great number of disciples among the ancient pagans, and the sensual philosophy of modern times hails him as a patron. At this very day the dainty livers rally under the joyous banner of the moralist of Gargettus, and his cherished shade inspires the guests and presides over the soothing intoxication of banquets. End of section one. Recording by Philip Gould.